Are you there? Yes. Do you want to call okay, the time? So the time. Yes, the time is five thirty-seven. Great. Um, Lorita Mellon. Here. Neha Banger. Lucia Angel. B. Franks Walker. Here. Richard Harvey Jr. Eric Murphy. Present. Mark Smith. Here. Khalil Toki will not join us tonight. Ali Yassin. We have a quorum. Okay. Very good. Uh oh. There we go. Um. Okay. I don't really have anything to report tonight, so I guess we can go to our first action item, which is um on B here. It's the approval of the minutes from our August tenth meeting. And um. <clears throat> Excuse me, Chairwoman? Yes. Yes. Uh, um, is Damon present? Damon? Yeah, I'm present. Uh, oh, okay. Present, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure. <laughs> I'm a <laughs> non-voting member, so I'm not part of the quorum. Oh, I, no, I understand, mm -hmm. but um, I, I thought it was important for you to, to be present if you were here. I, I just wanted to make sure you were here. Okay. So can I get a motion to approve the minutes from our last meeting? I make a motion that we approve the meeting, the minutes from the last meeting. I second the motion. Okay, thank you. Oh, now, uh, Madam Chair, now you would ask yes. for Yes, um, you, I'm sorry, repeat that. Um, you would ask for a vote on the motion to approve the minutes from the okay. meeting. Okay, yeah, okay. So, um, let's take a vote for the minutes, the approval of the minutes. Aye. Um, Aye. Mark Smith? Aye. Richard Harvey? Aye. Uh, Eric Murphy? Aye. Richard Harvey? B. B. And B. Thank you, B. Okay. Good. And then, Madam Chair, you would say that the motion passes. So the motion, yeah, the motion is, uh, the motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Gina? It looks like uh, we have a report from you. I'll be very, very brief since we have uh, a, a bunch of great mm -hmm. folks for you to hear from on the agenda today. Um, and we also have our retreat next week as a reminder on Monday. Yeah. So we'll get three more hours with all of you uh, to talk about our strategy. Um, the main item I wanted to update everyone on is that the medical director for Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless um, has been hired and started um, a couple weeks ago. His name's Tyler Evans. 
Um, he has some experience in global health and um, has been um, working in a number of roles uh, fighting the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm looking forward to inviting him here um, for you all to meet him. We're going to meet um, pretty regularly, and, um, and I'm really just looking forward to having you know another another uh, partner over there. I think Dr. Alter um, was really instrumental when he was here in that role at the beginning of the of the pandemic, and so. Looking forward to seeing what Dr. Evans um, is going to be able to, to help with um, in, in the new role, and that's really the main update that I wanted to I wanted to give you all, and I um, want to make sure we leave a bunch of time for the other folks on the agenda today. So that's all I have, unless there are any questions. Thank you, Damon. Okay, our um, item D is our dental report, and we have. Uh, few people that are going to be speaking to that tonight. So, Charmaine, I guess you want to speak first? I'm actually going to hand it off to uh, Dr. Josh Winhall. Um, he's put together a nice presentation for you all. Thank you. How are you guys all doing? Thank you for having me uh, today. Um, is it PowerPoint? Is it on the slide? Or? Yes. Okay. Do you mind scrolling down? Oh, yeah, okay. there we go. Yeah, so... Um, so I was tasked with uh, starting a uh, dental pilot program through AHS and HCH. Um, you mind going to the next slide? So kind of diving right into it. Um, so based off of the Alameda County Healthcare to the Homeless Oral Health Needs Assessment, we know that dental caries is the number one reported health issue um, in adults and leads to uh, school absenteeism in children. Currently, on-site dental services are not readily available to Alameda County homeless population, uh, but the data by the Oral Health Needs Assessment shows that on-site dental services are the most accessed service um, in comparison to con contracted sites or even through the Alameda Health System clinics. Uh, so providing on-site dental care access would be tremendously valuable to the homeless community. Um, Moving on to the next site, our, our next slide, um, what I was able to do is kind of look at the summary. So the oral needs assessment kind of summarized certain bullet points. Uh, so there's growing homelessness, uh, dental's in high need for children and adults, and the existing infrastructure uh, is working but needs expansion. So they had recommended preventative and education, um, and then also finding dental homes. Um, moving on to the to the next slide. Um, so some of the recommendations were screenings, education, road mapping, oral health, also uh, homeless-focused uh, dental care with HCH programs, and countywide oral health coordination. So what we basically did is we took the recommendations, took the summaries, and we decided to kind of pilot it and have these goals. Um, so if you go to the next slide, um, myself as one dentist at point, well, 0.5 FTE, so 2.5 days a week. Um, what I was able to accomplish or what our goals were, were to have dental screenings, dental education, oral hygiene instructions, application of fluoride varnish, uh, distribution of oral hygiene kits, and then also coordination between the shelter and Highland Hospital or Eastmont Clinic for comprehensive care and emergency treatment. Uh, going to the next slide, um, this is just kind of an example of the oral hygiene kits that we handed out to the majority of our patients. Uh, they're very appreciative of the oral hygiene kits. Um, 
We also had denture adhesive that we gave out to our patients with dentures. They're very appreciative of that as well. And then we also did the instructions. Um, moving on to the next slide. Um, so coordinating patient care at Highland and Eastmont. So what we would normally do or what I would do after the dental screening is I would refer patients either to Highland Dental, oral surgery, same day clinic, or um, Eastmont, Eastmont Wellness Clinic, which is our pediatric clinic. Um, patients' contact information or the shelter site was recorded and then a secure message was sent over um, to our patient service representatives at Highland Hospital. And then from Highland Hospital, patient service representatives would reach out to the patients uh, to coordinate an in-person appointment. Um, so during this pilot, what I was also able to do is kind of gather some data. So I took surveys on patients. Um, if you scroll to the next uh, slide, show. So we roughly saw about 73 patients um, from the end of June to the end of August. Uh, the age range for the patients were two years old to 86 with an average age of 53 years old. Um, the sex breakdown, 80% uh, of our patients were male, 20% were female. Um, then moving on to the next slide. Um, also in the survey, what we did is we looked at the chief complaint. Um, do the patients have access to dental care? When was their last dental visit? And do they have transportation? If so, is it convenient? Um, so looking at the chief complaints, uh, majority of patients, their chief complaint was missing tooth, tooth structure, uh, followed by uh, dentures, partials, so ill-fitting dentures or partials that are broken, um, and then followed by pain and sensitivity. Um, moving to the next slide, um, Access to dental care. Oh, I'm sorry. So we're still on the chief complaint. You can go to the next slide. The following slide, yeah. So access to dental care. 90% um, 90, 90 of our patients did not have access to dental care, uh, while 10% had access to dental care. Um, patients last visit, um, the range was from one month to about 30 years, uh, with an average of 10 years since the last dental visit. Moving on to the next slide, um, transportation to Highland Hospital or Eastmont. So um, only 9% of patients said they didn't have transportation, while 91% said they did have transportation. Um, but out of the survey patients, 82% uh, said that although they had the transportation, it'd be a challenge for them to get to either Highland or Eastmont for, for you know, uh, a dental visit on time. So it'd be kind of an inconvenience. Um, moving on to the next PowerPoint slide, um, so treatment. Um, so for the most part, majority of our patients seem like they want a comprehensive care um, from cleanings to fillings, um, followed by uh, same-day visits, which are a lot of times like emergency visits, and then followed by oral surgery referrals. So we referred a lot of patients to oral surgery for extractions and Lastly, with uh, dentures and partials. So uh, moving on to the next slide, some of our accomplishments for the phase one pilot, um, successful warm handoff uh, to our mobile medical team, which were very, very helpful. Um, we were able to refer a lot of patients. If I saw the patient and they had high blood pressure, for example, um, we would refer that patient directly over to our medical staff. Um, also, coordinating comprehensive dental care for our patients. Um, we were successful in doing that. And then 
female who came in for dental screening had facial swelling, and um, we were able to get her into oral surgery within about one or two days. So it was very beneficial to that patient, um, and you know now she's actually doing very well. Moving to next slide, some of our challenges. So patient follow-up, patient outreach, lack of dental equipment, lack of appropriate dental staffing, tracking patients who have successfully scheduled and come in for in-person appointments. Um, so we actually have been able to track that recently, thank you to Heather. And it looks like uh, we were able to see about 34% of the patients um, you know, that we were able to screen, which is uh, a pretty good accomplishment. Um, you know, we hope to increase that number. Um, also, sometimes we're dealing with unreliable scheduling at some of the shelters or unreliable equipment. Um, moving on to the next slide. So our phase two goals. So our phase two goals are really to kind of ex expand our scope. Um, and what we'd like to do is start with limited exams, dental x-rays, dental cleanings, um, and sedative fillings or temporary fillings. Um, also, we'd like to increase our volume, our encounter rate, so we'd like to see about eight to 10 patients per day, or roughly 100 patients per month, if possible. Um, we'd also like to increase the integration between dental and primary care. So the goal is to actually refer about 50% of our patients to our medical team. Um, continuing on to the next slide, um, some of our additional goals, um, we, we anticipate that we'll be able to refer 10%, I think it's more like probably about 40% um, of our patients uh, per month to comprehensive care or to emergency care at Highland or Eastmont. Um, also, we'd like to improve the coordination. Um, so right now, I think before I kind of told you the process of the referrals and how we get patients in, we like to directly schedule patients on our van um, with our PSR, and I think we actually get a better show rate, you know, um, better results that way. Also, uh, increasing outreach at the shelters, uh, that would also probably increase our show rate. And then ideally, we want to get patients into, you know, either uh, Highland or Eastmont for treatment. Um, what resources are required to expand our scope in this phase two? So, Ideally, uh, I'd like to probably go to 0.6 FTE, which is three days a week. We want to register dental assistant, uh, dental coordinator, portable dental delivery unit, uh, x-ray unit, and dental sensors, dental chair, provider chair, assistant chair, sterilization equipment, and additional dental supplies. Um, when do we think we'll be able to expand the scope? Our goal is to expand the scope of uh, the practice uh, when we get the staffing and supplies and equipment that we need. Um, you can move on, I'm sorry. And yeah, I'm going to do this. One more. You can keep going, yeah. Uh, and yeah, there we are. And then can you, there we go. All right, perfect. So the mobile dental phase three. So our goal is to once again expand uh, treatment and our scope, and we'd like to provide comprehensive exams, deep cleanings, extractions, fillings and fabrication and repair of dentures and partials. Um, and then moving on to the next slide, our long-term goal um, is maybe to ideally have a mobile dental unit or a mobile dental van uh, with two chairs and a sterilization area. Uh, the other option is having a mobile or having mobile dental equipment um, that we can actually transition and, and move to designated spaces 
And then you can go to the last slide. Um, in conclusion, our phase one pilot program has shown us that there is a high demand for dental services uh, amongst the Alameda County homeless community. We have learned that a large portion of the homeless population has not had access to dental care in several years, and that transportation of care is challenging. We believe that by incorporating and expanding dental services into the existing medical model and offering on-site dental care, we will be able to improve the overall health of the Alameda County homeless community. So thank you guys very much for your time. Um, any questions or recommendations? Concerns. Uh, I uh, this is Mark. I have uh, two questions. Uh -huh. uh, one is uh, it's obvious to me based on your report uh, that that uh, uh, that the dental unit did do a series of uh, surveys. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong about that, but it sounds like you, you were able to capture some information about the patients you treat uh, through uh, an actual patient survey. Um, and you can correct yes. me if I'm wrong about that. But my second question is, well, in, well, in keeping with that, um, I, I noticed uh, that you talked about the patients you served, but I'm just curious whether or not any information was collected about uh, the race of patients. That's the first question. Um. You know, actually, I didn't, I, I'm sure we've collected it in our system through EPIC when we register the patients. So I'm sure there's a report that we can pull. I'm sure Heather can pull that. Right. I, I just didn't include it in my report. But yeah, I'm okay. sure I can pull that data. And my second question is, which is probably harder to answer, is uh, given the fact that we are serving homeless people, uh, just want to uh, just out of curiosity, I mean, you talked to, about the various uh, varied services that are being offered, and I'm just wondering, uh, one thing that might be missing or I didn't really hear, because uh, it's a different type of service, although it is still dental, is uh, people that you find uh, who are homeless who uh, are actually suffering from um, uh, medium or advanced uh, periodontal disease. Okay. Yes, Mark. So um, I think I mentioned in phase two, um, we're actually trying to do cleanings. Um, and oh, you know, okay. that would, Yeah, so those cleanings would definitely help with the periodontal disease. But then we also talked about in phase three, possibly doing deep cleanings, and that would definitely be beneficial for a periodontal disease. So we definitely are working towards that, that goal oh, okay. of, you know, supporting patients in that manner. Okay. Uh, that's it for me. And the other thing I would add is even within phase one, I think being able to screen folks and connect them to care at the regular clinic is, you know, meaningfully connecting them to the ability to get periodontal disease cared for in the regular setting. So I think even even in this phase, we've already added some capability for addressing that by, by being able to pull folks in, even if we're not addressing it on site. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have a question. This is B. Will you be able to get more money for the things that you need next year or in the very near future? Um, Heather or Dr. Ian, you guys may be, be able to answer that a little bit more or better than me. Um, I believe so. Hi, B. This is Heather. So last, um, at our last meeting, we passed our, our budget, our health center budget, and it included funds that support Josh Wynn's position and also a registered dental assistant. 
There are some additional funds that we're expecting through both the county and through the um, Alameda Health System Foundation that would also support the dental program. I don't know whether or not we'll have enough for everything that they're requesting right away, but um, this is something that you guys can discuss and decide to prioritize when you do your strategic planning um, next week. Okay, thank you. Um, I have a question too. Uh, I noticed that you said you have seen children as young as two. What percentage of um, of the people that you're seeing are children? Do you know? Uh, you know what? It, that was actually only one child that we saw oh, okay. when he was two years old. Um, okay. But yeah, for the most part, we're seeing majority. I would say probably 99% of our patients are adults. You know, or 90%. Right. Um, so we're not seeing that many children. Okay. And how are you advertising this? Is this? Are you going to the shelters to let them know about the services, or how is that being done? Yeah. So, um, so what I believe we're trying to do. So we actually made, um, I guess, like a, a pamphlet or some type of, mm -hmm. you know, um, description of what we're going to provide in terms of services, including the medical service. And then mm -hmm. um, I believe that Cam, um, he actually uh, will call the different shelters and let them know, you know, when we'll be there, what type of services we're offering. We also, um, with myself, Cam, and Donald do, and sometimes Martha, we'll actually walk around every site that we're at and kind of try to mingle with the patients and let them know what services we're offering. Um, so, you know, that's how we kind of do some of our outreach right now. Do our street workers um, go to the encampments and pass out information about it? Do you know? So this program is with our shelter health program, and so dental is going to the same shelters that our medical team is going to. So all of the work as they're talking about outreach is at the specific shelters where we're providing service. Um, and we okay. don't do the street health. Um, that would be um, a different team from Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program that does the street health. Um, this is Mark again. Um, one thing I'd like to ask is, uh, point blank, is there is there anything that uh, you see um, in terms of the dental outreach that you're doing, um, whether or not um, you need, I mean, you could always use more money, but here's the point I'm making is, is if, if, if somehow, some way, we as a body can help um, um, expand the program uh, by giving you guys um, more of a budget to do so or whatever powers that be can extend budgets. Uh, my question is, do you see right now, given what you have to work with, that it, it, it is primarily working for the patients uh, to an adequate level or, or do you feel that you're short of funds uh, to really fulfill your mission? Uh, yeah, so I think we're definitely short of the funds to fulfill the mission. I mean, um, in the PowerPoint, I put our long-term goals, and I think that really having, like, some type of mobile dental unit, um, almost like a dental office, right, on sure. site would be the most ideal way of providing care for the patients. Right. So that would be my goal. Um, to have something like that so we can do extraction, so I can do filling, so I can repair a denture, right? That's really what I think would be beneficial to the patients that, um, okay. you know, 
that we're treating. Um, so, okay. well, I for, well, I for one, if I have any power, uh, and I think this committee, if it, uh, our committee, if we, uh, uh, if we have any power in that, I, I'd like to see that happen. Thank you. That'd be great. Really, the goal is to provide more on-site services. You know, our phase one pilot is just really primarily screenings and trying to connect the patients to our brick-and-mortar sites at Highland and Eastmont. And, you know, while that does add a benefit, I think as Joshua had pointed out, that transportation is often an issue for these patients that even if they were provided an appointment, they might not be able to make it. So our ultimate goal is providing more um, on-site services for these patients to really capture them where they're already located so that transportation wouldn't be an issue for them and they can get the services that they need on-site. Uh, this is Mark again. Um, just one thing i like to mention, um, I don't know if we've actually examined this or not, but, but uh, one thing ab about um, this particular issue, and I think it goes to medical as well, is, you know, reaching the people where they are, uh, and what I mean by that is um, before we even dispatch a global, uh, I mean, a, a mobile clinic anywhere, um, it would be good to know where um, there are facilities that are housing actual homeless people. Uh, and, and the reason why I say that's important because maybe we could provide, uh, like, um, uh, for lack of a better term, a cheat sheet that a homeless per person can look at and say, well, the dental office, is, the mobile dental clinic is going to be at such and such a place on such and such a day uh, this month, or it's going to be there twice a month. And they can look at that and, and go there and expect the dental clinic to be there uh, at that date and time, and uh, I I don't know if that's been talked about, but but it would it would help um, because uh, like you said, there are people that have transportation problems, but if they can get to a site uh, that's in their neighborhood or certainly within their 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 uh, physical range, um, uh, people would I think would make it. Um, but they need to know where it is and where it's going to show up. Um, I think, am I wrong about that or no? I think that's a great recommendation, Mark, and something we can definitely try to incorporate, you know, into our outreach. Yeah, I think it would make a difference because then people would uh, would be more committed to going because they know that uh, if they need it, uh, then they know exactly um, uh, where it is at, any at any given time given the schedule and um also i want to uh press the issue that to make this happen that uh, one place we can start is really if we come up with a schedule we can make it we can make it our business to start posting it, it in shelters so that people can pick it up in shelters and that would be a point of contact where they can actually get a brochure or, or at least a schedule of where um, uh, that particular um, service is, you know, and we can use that for many services, but we're only talking about dental right now, and 
Um, so I'm just saying, even for dental, that um, that would be a um, that would be I think it would um, help a lot um, if people can get a schedule, especially in what we uh, what we what we would call I guess uh, established shelters. When I say that, I mean by a nonprofit or uh, um, or city-run um, shelters, wherever, uh, w- all kinds of shelters we could think of, uh, we could reach them by, by having such a schedule that they could pick up and, and um, be self-assured that uh, w- um, where the dental clinic is going to be, that's where it's going to be uh, at that date and time, and, um, and that's it. And that, it just gives them uh, a little reassurance and they're going to make the effort to go there because, um, like you said, they don't have transportation. So some people will walk if it's nearby, um, but it's still uh, taxing for homeless people to, to, to get to places. Yeah, I think those are great recommendations, Mark, and we'll definitely uh, take those into account and try to get them into our next phases. I like the idea of that brochure, Mark, um, kind of, you know, to set out a schedule. In our phase one pilot, we did think about, you know, where are our patients, you know, where where are they already located? So we did look at the local shelters in Alameda County. And, you know, as uh, Heather mentioned, we had partner with the already existing mobile medical unit. And we just, um, you know, kind of, Joshua was really great and just tagged along with them. And we did some warm handoffs. And I think it's really important because, um, you know, we can also in, do a lot of integration work around, you know, medical and dental as well, having, um, you know, Dr. Wanda side by side um, with Dr. Hall, I think is has been really beneficial for our patients. And for the sites that they've already visited, they've had to, or they've, you know, purposefully done so with some regularity so that, you know, the patients are, you know, aware, oh, you know, the, the van's coming again. And, you know, maybe they don't want to see the dentist the first time. Who knows? Maybe they're afraid and they have some dental anxiety. But, you know, the next week they're there again. And, oh, this time maybe they want, want, want to go see them and go check out, you know, this Dr. Hall person and see what he's all about and what they have to offer. So we have to we have tried to establish some regularly, regularity in our current schedule. But I really like the idea of the, the, the pamphlet idea. Are there any other comments or questions? Okay, Brenda, can we go on to the the next item? Oh, hold on. Okay. Let's see, Brenda, can you bring it down to the next agenda item? Vote on, correct? 
Uh, first, we'll have the discussion introducing the item, and then uh, yes, we'll make a motion. Yeah. So, yep. Great. Okay. Perfect. Well, I can just open briefly and kind of uh, set the health center context, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Dr. Afsali. Um, so um, I think, as all of you know, dental services are obviously part of our existing scope. You've heard some excellent work that we're doing, you know, within that scope and within our current budget to try to explore how we might expand some of that work. But there's work that we're already doing at Alameda Health System on site in oral surgery um, that is um, not technically yet included in our scope of services. And so this action item is about um, you know, making sure that that work that we're doing that's really valuable for our patients experiencing homelessness is included in our scope of services, which will allow us to really streamline our processes for billing for it and make sure that, you know, it's, it's, it's a full-fledged service that we're able to fully offer in the same way we can all the other services on our scope. And so we wanted to give Dr. Afdali a chance just to talk about what that service is, you know, who's currently receiving it within Alameda Health System and within the Homeless Health Center, and answer any questions uh, that you all have. And just really grateful to all our dental colleagues for coming today and for all the great work that they do. And um, certainly I can just say it's been my experience as a primary care provider, you know, back um, at Alameda Health System in the last couple years, um, just really feeling the presence of my dental colleagues and, um, and a real difference, I think, in the, in the care that my patients are able to receive and the access they have to the services. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to be pushing these collaborations forward. And with that, I'll, I'll hand it to you, Dr. Afsali. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for the kind words and um, the honor to really speak today. Um, you know, Dr. Hall's presentation like brought back so many memories. Um, so Dr. Ng and I have known each other for 20 years now. <laughs> uh, so we met actually as managers of uh, the Homeless Dental Clinic in San Diego. And at the time, I was just a waiter. I had no idea what I wanted to do, and uh, nothing wrong with it. Uh, I probably made more back then, to be honest with you. But uh, my, my nephew was born to cross the lip, and I got involved with the UCSD Pre-Dental Society. And uh, once I got involved with that, they just started um, uh, this uh, project with the medical clinics, uh, Dr. Beck and Dr. Silverstein, to provide dental care to the homeless population in San Diego. So uh, Dr. Ng was the manager at the downtown clinic. I was the manager at the Baker Clinic, which was actually a mobile clinic uh, close to Chula Vista. Um, and that's what really started, uh, started me, started my spark and my passion. And I uh, started uh, studying for the uh, dental exam and, um, <laughs> and the reason why I'm $500,000 in debt today, but I, will, I, wouldn't change, I wouldn't change it for the world. So um, just to go back, I went from there, I went to New York uh, for dental school just because so many memories and actually your project, Dr. Hall, is exactly, I just read mine from 2007, is exactly what I had on there, phase one, phase two. I got to show you, and I swear I have it. Shown I, will, I, I want to see Hall. it. <laughs> it's like the exact same thing. Um, and so uh, when I was, when I was at Columbia in dental school, uh, the uh, medical students said, we really need dental services. And I said, this is all I really care about. Uh, I'll do anything to do that. And they said, well, this, they tried this a few years ago, uh, but uh, it, it just hasn't happened. They couldn't get funding. They couldn't get this. I'm like, it's going to happen. So I, I spoke to our class at that point and uh, just 
And then we just started with, you know, step one, needs analysis. And it was the West Harlem population. It was at a church at St. Mary's, and it was to have a mobile clinic there. And everyone said, there's no way you're going to be able to start this. I got a few of my colleagues from my class who are also passionate, great guys. I still talked to actually one I just spoke to Saturday about it. Um, and we said, we could do this. And uh, so we kept going to the dean, and the dean kept pretty much shoving us off. It's like, no, no, we give free care. I'm like, but you don't target the homeless population. And he's like, but, you know, we do give free care. I go, I understand that. I said, this is student run. I want a student run clinic. I don't want, no offense to anyone. I'm old now. Uh, old guys here. We want, the, we want the students to run this show. And it happened. And it happened in San Diego. And we were very successful with it with all the um, amazing work of, you know, Dr. Ying and especially Dr. Silverstein, who was the director and started it and put his whole heart into it. Uh, both Charmaine and I know him extremely well. Um, so I, I kept going back, and he says, you're not going to give up. I'm like, I'm not giving up. And I was a first year at the time. So then second year happened, still not giving up. So uh, my friends and I said, well, we need a mobile clinic. We literally called medical schools in New York. I can't believe we did this, actually. We called medical schools in New York uh, to say that had a mobile dental clinic on Google at some time, and I heard they're not using it. And I said, why isn't, why are you using it? Well, it's not coded and, you know, we don't have someone driving it and it's outdated. And I said, can we come just take a look? So we went to um, Brooklyn Medical College and I said, this is perfect. We could do that. Well, you need a license. So my friend and I, <laughs> the next week, got a license to drive that mobile clinic because I knew these are going to be all the questions that, you know, the dean of the school is going to ask me. So next week I asked, I go, well, who's going to drive it? I go, I am. I just got the license. And my friend did too. And he's like, all right, you can't say no anymore. So we started that. And we started with phase one, uh, just like Dr. Hall said. At first, it was just uh, routine screenings, uh, potentially cleanings. And then we went into treatment. And um, we had very uh, dedicated attendings and uh, faculty that really, um, they they were so much more happy to be there than to be working at Columbia. <laughs> and we dragged them out after, you know, 5.30 and like, okay, we'll, we'll start the homeless clinic. And just, just like you said earlier, we were there every Thursday at a certain time. We dropped the mobile clinic off. It was at St. Mary's Church of West Harlem on the 20th. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just started from there. And there, because of the years of um, experience they had with the medical school and the medical clinic, and they knew everybody, they felt so close to us. And they felt finally, you know, as you know, dentists, we're all, you know, no one's more scared of any profession than us, right? No one wants to come to us. And we have, uh, you know, it, it, already established relationship with the, uh, the medical director and all the medical students and residents that were all putting so much time into their, these, you know, the warm handoff that Dr. Ng said, I mean, that's what it was all about. And we instilled the trust in them at that point, and they finally found a dental home. And um, after that, we went to phase two. When we start phase two, this is my, right before I graduated, my fourth year, and um, uh, at that point, uh, I'll never forget, we had, uh, you know, this population coming to visit us in the dental school and at Columbia, and and my friends go, he's here, he's here, and we, like, sat him down, and we're like, 
I, we couldn't believe it that he trusted us so much to come and it was so fortunate, uh, yeah, to be able to be in that position so and to serve the population. So that's that and uh, just kind of background, but we'll talk about the scope of service of oral, oral surgery um, if we could go to the next slide. Thank you. So oral maxillofacial surgery, this is either a four or six year uh, residency program after dental school. So you do dental school and then you have different specialties. Uh, it could be, you know, anything. It could be a one year uh, general dentistry residency, like a GPR, AGD, which I think uh, every everyone here has done. California actually mandated it. Or uh, subspecialties, so root canal treatment, periodontics. You could go on and on orthodontics and uh, oral surgery is one of them. 50% uh, of the residency programs go into medical school, and about 50% of them don't go into medical school. So if you don't go into medical school, it's usually a four-year program. If you do, it's a six-year program. Right now, uh, we have uh, three residents uh, a year for four years. So we have 12 uh, uh, wonderful residents at Alameda and Highland. I'm thinking about uh, having an optional like MD if they, if they feel like they would like to do that. Um, but that's that's kind of oral surgery. No one really knows about it. No one knows what maxillofacial means. And really all maxillofacial means is mouth, face, and neck um, and doing procedures in there. So it could be in the mouth, surgical procedures. It could be on the face and it could be uh, on the neck or in the neck as well. Um, next slide, please. Great. So scope of uh, practice, we have dental alveolar. So once again, this is pretty much any tooth-related uh, soft tissue in the oral cavity, as well as uh, the alveolus, which is the bone that surrounds the teeth in there. So as you see, it could be a dental implant. It could also be a soft tissue biopsy that you do there. Um, it, it, the most uh, obviously common and popular procedure would be wisdom teeth extractions, which probably quite a few people on this uh, meeting has had, um, or any sort of extraction. And unfortunately, we're we're the last resort uh, for you know the under uh, that's not the best word, but the community we have that we're serving here in Alameda, um, because most of these clinics and most of these private practices, unfortunately, uh, just refer them to us. So we're kind of their last resort, which uh, as I tell the residents, we're so fortunate to be in that position to be able to serve them. And tooth pain is is huge. Uh, and jaw pain is huge. It happens all the time. And the trauma in Oakland as well um, is a very, um, unfortunately, it's, it's actually not, uh, it's decreasing, which is great news, but it's still quite a, quite a bit of trauma, especially when COVID Kind of the mandates came down. Uh, July 4th, uh, uh, for one, was the most trauma patients the, the hospital's ever seen. Um, so these are patients that don't feel comfortable coming in, and these are patients that we see afterwards. And just this week alone, I've had two surgeries. Both of the patients were homeless patients. Luckily, they found us. Locally, they had access to us, but uh, I'm guessing most of the population actually doesn't after any trauma. Uh, infection, uh, infection can spread from the teeth or non-tooth-related structures of the face or in the mouth. Um, unfortunately, a lot of these could be airway impeding and um, uh, not only cause more morbidity, but within days cause mortality as well. So, um, and once again, these patients are very resilient. Uh, I know the homeless population is very resilient. Uh, they don't uh, come in very easily, not right when it happens. Um, uh, you know, you have other patients that 
you have a little chip on your nail, they come in and see you. Uh, this is kind of the opposite. And uh, unfortunately, we see them later, three days, four days later. And at that point, you get a CT scan and you see that you have airway um, uh, uh, structures that are, you know, a normal airway and it's 80% occluded and it's, it is progressing. So um, it's, it's, it's very scary. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we see this quite a bit, especially in this population. Pre-prosthetic surgery is surgery for uh, patients that are not able to uh, have certain restorations like dentures, um, uh, for whatever reason, lack of bone. Uh, so we do other surgeries to kind of help the soft tissue, the hard tissue, to be able to chew and to be able to have a set of teeth, even if it's dentures, implant-supported dentures. So that's, that's that. Um, if you go to the next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, trauma already talked about. We do all that head and neck trauma with only level one uh, service uh, in Alameda. So uh, once again, very happy, very, very happy for our residents to be able to see this population and and uh, really be able to help them. I mean, there's nothing better than that. Gunshot wounds, knife wounds, um, unfortunately, to dental trauma. You know, someone falls. You know, older. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, a patient that is had fallen, broke a tooth, had a seizure, had syncope, uh, you know, just passed out and broke a tooth. You know, we're able to help all of them, which is really nice. Um, uh, orthognathic surgery is jaw surgery. These are patients that have not been able to chew. Uh, they're either their lower jaw is too forward, their lower you know, overbite, underbite, I think, uh, are kind of the generic terms for it. Um, and we're able to help them or they have uh, craniofacial disorders. Uh, that happen at birth on the uh, a lot of these patients that we're able to help with, and we've seen you know um, uh, parents that didn't know where to go. That you know I, I I trained in West Virginia and they didn't know where to go, and and this population was um, uh, you know low socioeconomic, and when they see you, they're just eyes light up and your eyes light up, and uh, they don't know how much. Uh, that means to us and, and we're, you know, they're doing us a service more than we're doing them a service. So um, can we go to the next slide? Please? Uh, yeah, temporal mandibular joint pain, that's, you know, clicking, probably a few people on this uh, meeting have that. Uh, pain, pain when you're op uh, waking up, opening, closing, you, a lot of times muscular pain, neck pain. Uh, so we could give anything, and we work with our dental colleagues for this, for a night guard. Uh, so it might, it might be something as little as bruxism, which means that you're just, you know, grinding your teeth at night that you just don't know of, that uh, you could just give a night guard and be out of pain and out of that morbidity. Um, so we do provide that service, and a lot of patients do have that. Pathology is a big thing. So uh, when it comes to cancer, the... Uh, 90% of oral cancer is due to smoking and drinking. And I hate to say that a lot of the homeless population, not all, I'm not even going to say most because I don't have the information, but a lot of them do smoke and drink. And that's the one, number one etiology for this population. If no one sees them, if, if not a dentist or an oral surgeon be able to even take, you know, look inside their mouth, do a biopsy, they don't know. And by the time it expands, it gets larger. Unfortunately, at that time, it's palliative care or um, uh, uh, untreatable, unfortunately, even radiotherapy at that point. So it's, we it's really, too late. What's that? It's too late. Too late? 
You're saying it's too late. Too late, exactly, exactly, yeah. It's too late, and that's a, as, you, as you all probably know, the the biggest one reason you're able to uh, treat a patient and a patient successful after cancer treatment is early diagnosis, and um, and this is a population we see very late, and we've seen quite a few already in our clinic this year, unfortunately. Um, so we're really hoping to to pick this up early um, and to um, really screen these patients. Uh, reconstruction, um, I don't expect this at the mobile clinic, uh, a lot of the reconstruction, but we were able to bring them into our you know, hospital, uh, provide a dental oral surgery home for them and treat them. And that could be um, uh, uh, vascular flaps from different parts of the body, which we're trained to do, as well as regional which means that we cut out the cancer and then cover it uh, to give function uh, and appearance and cosmesis, cosmetics uh, to these patients so that they could have a better quality of life afterwards. So we're, we're luckily uh, able to do that. Um, can we get the next slide, please? In anesthesia, uh, other than anesthesiologists, uh, we're the most trained when it comes to anesthesia, both in general anesthesia sedation. So a lot of these uh, procedures are more morbid and, uh, and people need to be more asleep or out of it as opposed to just doing it under local anesthesia. So we're all qualified to do that and both on pediatric population as well as adult population. Um, unfortunately, we don't have uh, pediatric care in a when it comes to general anesthesia for larger procedures in the hospital, but we do have affiliation with the Children's Hospital of Oakland that we could definitely treat them if we see them in the clinic and we screen them uh, from there and we can manage them afterwards. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, and uh, thank you, uh, Heather, for this slide. Uh, so this shows that 10% of the population that we see in our clinic is homeless and um, which is probably uh, rel uh, relative to, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to medical care as well. But um, we're happy to say that, you know, this population that we could provide a dental home, uh, medical home, um, referrals to the primary care because a lot of these patients, they come in because of a tooth pain, but they won't see a doctor, correct? It has to be, that tooth pain has to be so bad that they're forced to come in after three months of pain of not sleeping. So it's great that they could come in and see us and then uh, we could treat them. We do, you know, the extractions or implants later for uh, functional reasons, but at the same time, we could refer them to the primary care physician for uh, comprehensive medical care as well. Next slide, please. And this kind of goes into that. So a lot of, uh, as we always said in uh, dental school, we're proud to say the, the mouth is the gateway to the rest of the body. So uh, based on poor oral health, that could really lead to poor systemic health. And that, that is so true with cardiovascular health, with diabetes, uh, as well as really aggressive acute, which means two or three days um, issues with infections, uh, bleeding, uh, gunshot wounds, and really this uh, even, uh, you know, dental pain. Uh, it's just, there's not, there's, 
you know, even going through medical school I, and going through resi- uh, general surgery uh, year, I didn't see anyone in more pain than just a tooth. And uh, so we really feel for them, and it, it's painful. And uh, even though it's something so small, it's a small structure, but unfortunately, a lot of a lot of the community has that, and uh, we're able to treat it uh, both restoratively with our general dental colleagues as well as us if it needs to be extracted and um, uh, reconstructed later. Okay. Next slide, please. Um, this is kind of what we talked about. Uh, a lot of the disorders that we're able to even diagnose by looking just in the mouth would be diabetes, HIV, um, uh, uh, potential cardiac conditions, and that goes with periodontal disease. Uh, and someone made a great uh, comment of that earlier. And another one's obstructive sleep apnea, which really no one knows about. And I'll tell you, I had severe obstructive sleep apnea through medical school as well as residency, and I didn't know until one of my uh, co-residents said, you definitely have it. You stop breathing at night. And I said, really? And I went and checked out, and it was true. I had very severe obstructive sleep apnea. And this is very, very serious. I mean, this is once again, something that can uh, kill you uh, due to the cardiovascular and the pulmonary issues that it could cause over 5, 10, 15 years. So even diagnosing that and we're able to treat that and manage that is very important. Um, and it's something that we'll ask these patients when we screen them uh, there. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so just for uh, the dental data, uh, there are a lot of visits to ED. It's even more now. This is from actually a few years ago uh, that I had. Um, a lot of people get regular dental visits, but uh, there it's really a, a, a two spectrums. You know, you have one population does, and you have another population that never uh, seeks dental care. And unfortunately, it's not very close and it's over 5, 10, 15 years, hasn't seen a dentist. So, um, and it's great to work with, you know, both general dentistry and us that we can work together and we do that in our clinic right now. Um, great. Next slide, please. Almost done, sorry. Uh, head and neck cancer is a big thing. We, we treat that here and diagnosis, exactly like you said, it's too late. Um, a lot of times they'll have an ulcer and they're, they're very tough and resilient and they said, I'm okay, a little pain, I'm okay, and then it gets too late. We're hoping to screen those patients, and we're hoping to treat those patients, and we're able to do that, uh, which, which, is, which is great. Oral cavity cancer, so that's uh, cancer in the mouth, not the back of the throat. There's two different ones. Uh, really quick, in the mouth, not the back of the throat or the back of the tongue, is not much of a rise, uh, not on a rise, and that's because uh, smoking has been very slightly down for males in, this, uh, in the population. So it's kind of plateaued, going down just a little bit. Um, if you could go to the next slide as well, I think we talked about the throat cancer. And this is kind of what we're uh, talking about. It's all due to alcohol, which I said, there's a synergistic effect to tobacco. Tobacco is number one, alcohol is number two. That's 90% of all patients that have oral squamous cell carcinoma, which is the cancer of the mouth. Um, and next slide, please. Um, so uh, this is kind of what we talked about. It, yeah, a little science words, but uh, smoking and alcohol, that's, that's really what causes uh, the majority of the cancers in the mouth over about 30, 40 years of that. Uh, next slide, please. Um, 
And then, uh, yeah, one thing I just want to talk about is, you know, public awareness is low. We talk about a lot of other cancers. We don't, we don't talk about oral cancer so much. And I'll tell you, going through medical school, I only had one day on the mouth. <laughs> they really don't learn it. We all know that and we understand that. And, um, and, and this goes across all medical schools. And that's probably because there's a, you know, dental profession that, you know, specializes in this. Um, so it's, um, uh, the awareness a lot of times is low. And even though, uh, oral cancer exams, I do have a lot of physician colleagues that can diagnose that. The majority really don't, and it really is, you don't get the education or training uh, before that. Um, and, and public awareness is low. Believe it or not, oral cancer, oral pharyngeal cancer in India for males is number one. You know, it's not lung cancer, it's not breast cancer, it's, it's oral cancer, which is unbelievable. I uh, lived in India for a few months. Um, volunteering out there, but uh, I was very surprised when I saw that. Uh, next slide, please. And this is HPV. So this is HPV related, the same uh, but different HPV as uh, cervical cancer. So it's HPV 16 and 18. It's mutation. It's due to other sexual activities, oral sexual activities. Um, and this is on the rise, unfortunately. And the vaccine helps with this. And that's why they're pushing it for uh, adolescents before getting to the uh, age of sexual activity to really have this vaccine prior. And obviously there's a lot of debate about it. There's a lot of debate about vaccines, period. We know that right now. Um, but this is on the rise. I see 25, we just had a 30 year old last week that had this. Um, and it's, it's crazy when you see a 20 year old that's never drank and smoke and unfortunately just have uh, you know a virus that could cause cancer. Um, and the same thing for cervical cancer, but it's, it's a lot more unknown when it comes to oral cancer. Yeah, right. Um, next slide, I think we're done. Okay, yeah, and this is just uh, early detection uh, versus late detection. Uh, it's what's the most important. And if we can detect it early, we will cure most of this, uh, uh, most of the population, most of the uh, homeless population. If we don't, unfortunately, it's gonna be uh, palliative or hospice care, which is, um, is, is a horrible way to pass away. Unfortunately, I've seen that quite a bit. And next slide. Okay, and that's it. Yeah, early detection saves lives. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Dr. Amzali, that's amazing. Um, maybe an opportunity for questions uh, now just about the service in general, either I think for Dr. Abdali on, you know, the content of this stuff or for me in terms of the, the you know, the motion that we're um, putting forward. Um, around the expansion of services, because we um, we do need to take a vote on this today. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, this is Mark. Uh, let me uh, say one thing, and then I want to ask a question. Um, I just want to say he mentioned earlier about sleep apnea, and I will share uh, with my colleagues um, that uh, I actually am a um, severe sleep apnea patient, and as a result, uh, I, I do sleep with a sleep apnea machine, and uh, I wouldn't do anything without it <laughs> uh, because it's, uh, it's changed my life in terms of uh, uh, whether I get restless sleep or not. And uh, if any of you uh, may, maybe some of you may be even suffering from sleep apnea on some level, 
and, and just not aware of it. And uh, if your if your insurance allows it, uh, examine whether or not you can be tested for it. If you can be tested for it, uh, I recommend to anyone and everyone uh, to do so because it, it, if you if you really have bad nights where you just don't sleep well for uh, for years on end, and then um, and then all of a sudden you get this machine. Um, yeah, is it easy to sleep with? No, but I tell you, it does make a difference in how you feel. Um, and um, and I just wanted to put that forward that uh, uh, if you are tested for it and you do suffer from it. If you do get a sleep apnea machine, it, it will definitely make a difference. So I want to say that. Um, that aside, uh, you, you had mentioned in your presenta- uh, presentation earlier about uh, implants. And um, I, given, given the uh, population we are serving, um, I was surprised that you would mention that simply because uh, financially it's out of reach of most people, even people with money. You, you are completely correct, and I just saw Charmaine uh, smile as well, because we've been working on this a lot this past year. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, restoring the, uh, you know, restoring their teeth, if it's the front teeth, that's, that's employability, correct? I mean, that's them getting jobs, you know, being without teeth uh, or being... Able smile. Yeah, uh, right. completely. It's more than just cosmetics, and uh, and we're trying to fight for that. We say it's not just, you know, we could I could do lip fillers and Botox as well, but that I don't like cosmetics, and I won't do cosmetics. I but you know, uh, giving people front teeth um, could really boost them. And I've had a few patients that really you know came back and you know they, they didn't need to thank us, but they did and. Uh, they were able to get a job, um, but a lot of it's functional as well. They have had dentures. I mean, can you imagine having dentures for 20 years and it's falling out all the time, falling yeah. out during social situations, and mm-hmm. you know you can't have a social life. I mean, the quality of life is awful, and um, so so is you know you're not eating, you're eating soft food, you can't chew anything, and um, you know going without a steak or uh, among other things. <laughs> yeah. so, um, uh, so we've been working on this, and uh, uh, luckily, um, uh, Alameda has been extremely supportive when it's come to uh, a population that needs it. So it is necessary for them, uh, both medically and uh, functionally necessary for them, and if it's too much. And it's based on their finances. As you guys know, it's charity care. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a program that we're, um, you know, utilizing for some patients, and um, uh, this is what we've been able to do, because believe me, uh, dental implants are expensive. I can't afford them. I mean, no, I don't they're know. very expensive. There'll be another day for another talk about that uh, with all my friends in private practice right now, but, um, but we're able to provide that service for uh, patients that are not able to afford it uh, based on finances as well and a sliding scale, so we're able presentation that was so informative. I learned a lot. And um, 
just encourages us, you know, to continue doing what we're doing and to support, to support you and support your program as well. Um, so, I, I think that's One last thing just for uh, yes. uh, Mark there. Uh, <laughs> You're very compliant with uh, the CFAP. <laughs> Most of the patients are not, which I'm very proud of you for that, first off. But you're right. You're either awake tomorrow or you're asleep tomorrow. And, uh, and I'm, this is my specialty, and I didn't know I had it till after. I mean, literally just four mm-hmm. years ago. I mean, that's, and I had severe, I had 65 on the score. You're, you know, that's over 60 is severe. And um, so people do surgery for it and other things. But if the CPAP is working, uh, keep it up and uh, strong work. That's hard. To well, do well, 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 let me just say, uh, when I got the CPAP machine, it was not easy for me to adapt to it because um, I, I sleep on my, I normally have slept on my left side. But once I was diagnosed with uh, a severe sleep apnea and I had to have the CPAP machine, that required me to sleep on my back, something I never do. And mm. so it was not easy for me the first uh, six, seven, eight months. I, I really tossed and turned with, with, with this being on, uh, you know, the, the mask being on my face and the whole thing. Um, but. Uh, over time, you do become accustomed to it, but in order to become accustomed to it, you have to use it even when you dread it. You have to put it mm-hmm. on and, and just stick with it, and eventually uh, you will naturally learn to sleep on your back when it's on your face. And it took me a while to get there, but I did get there, and the only way I got there was I kept putting it on no matter <laughs> how much I hated it the first six months I did it. You force yourself. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah that's really no, because that's the only way it's going to work. Right. Yeah. I, uh, last thing, just, uh, uh, you know, my high school friends, I saw them a few years ago, and they go, we're not sleeping in the same room as Pine. We know he snores all the time. And I said, I don't anymore. And I actually don't. And uh, <laughs> right. so not having a sugar soup apnea, not only is it about snoring and, you know, affecting everybody in the room, but it's also for your health. And it could cause a lot of serious issues, uh, honestly. It does. Lots of people got treated for that. Yep. Card- cardio as well. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I'm doing a sleep study very soon, too, myself, so... Oh. Ah, we'll see. <laughs> Good for you. Okay. All right. Um, anything else? So I think we now get to do the action item where you request. Yes. The... Right. Okay. Um, I would. Uh... Oh. Can I get a motion to um, approve the action item? for uh, a change in um, the scope to add oral surgery, action item E. Can I get a motion to approve that? I make, this is the, I make a motion. Thank you, Lee. Go ahead. Oh, I said to Sarah, got second. Oh, thank you. Okay. So now, um, take a vote here. Okay. Yeah. Hey, by the way, uh, this is Mark again. I, I can't really see the agenda. Uh, I'm, I'm having, um, let's just say I'm having technical difficulties. 
um, <laughs> uh, because I, I can't see it. Um, but uh, here's the thing. Um, I, I just want, um, before we adjourn, uh, that we have a reminder of when our actual retreat is and the time and date. Yeah, no problem. You can do that. Okay, let's take a vote here. Uh, B? It is. Mark? You're asking for a vote? Mark? Yes, to approve the uh, the uh, scope and sequence in the oral surgery. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. And Richard? Yes. Eric Murphy? Yes. Lucia Angel? Yes. Okay. And did I get everybody? Richard Hervey? Yeah. Okay. Are there any nays? No. It's approved, correct? Yes, it passes. It passes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay, action, I mean, item F for behavioral health update. And we have Karen Wise. I'm not sure Karen needs introduction. She's been here before. Um, she's our director mm -hmm. of uh, behavioral health in uh, right. ambulatory services. Um, and I'm mm -hmm. just going to go ahead and turn it over to her. Thanks, Karen. Okay. Hello. I'm glad right. to be here again to talk to the CAB. Um, I presented um, back almost a year ago, October last year, um, because I wanted to share our um, strategic thinking around um, ambulatory behavioral health services. Um, and so I'm back here to let you guys know of some decisions that our executive leaders have made, um, some changes that are going to happen and another opportunity for you guys to give feedback into next steps. So I have a few slides prepared. Okay, so um, why I'm here today is um, for the past two years, um, we have been evaluating and discussing how we can improve our behavioral health services that we offer in our ambulatory uh, clinics. So when I first joined AHS was three years ago, um, and I actually joined as part of the Behavioral Health SBU, um, and so I worked under the CAO for John George, and at that time, all of the behavioral health services were, were together. Um, then two years ago, um, we decided to split apart the acute services at John George from the rest of the outpatient behavioral health programs because they really were quite different when we were looking at the operational needs of an acute care hospital versus outpatient clinics. Um, so what we're talking about today is how we can better serve our ambulatory population. Um, what we do have in place right now is we do screening at all of our primary care clinics. Uh, and we are consistently finding about 30% of our patients have either depression or problematic substance use. Now, this is higher than what you see in a national average, where every year about 20% of the adult population will screen positive for some kind of behavioral health need. In our clinics, we're actually looking at more about a 30% positive response rate. 
Um, so we knew at the very beginning that this was a big concern for our population, and we wanted to look at what are we currently offering and what the strengths of those services and where can we do better. So we got a lot of stakeholder input. We talked to the staff who worked in our behavioral health programs. We talked to our labor partners at SEIU and ACNIA. We talked with current consumers who were getting services from us. Um, we talked to advocates. Um, there was input from the mental health board for the county. Um, and we came here and talked to the CAB. Then AHS did two different uh, financial evaluations by outside consultant groups to get that perspective on how our services were performing. Um, and so we've gotten all this information together and then there was a, you know, a huge leadership change and our new leaders had to be brought up to date on all of this good work. So they've now heard all of this analysis and they have decided on a path forward. Next slide. So what did we find in our assessment? We found that, um, I'm going to break up this analysis into two different groups. Uh, one is our mild to moderate severity population, and one is the moderate to severe. But I want to say, just to start with, that these are not my preferred ways of categorizing and siloing patients. If it was up to me, this wouldn't be the way. But this is the way that insurance works. Insurance um, says that mild to moderate mental health disorders are um, covered under the plan, and specialty mental health and substance use services actually are carved out into specialty mental health services. So that's why we're look, kind of looking at those two different groups now. So most of um, people experience um, a mild to moderate um, uh, severity disorder at some point. Um, again, any year, this is about 50% of the total population has some kind of concern around depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, substance use, et cetera. Um, patients often have a lot of difficulty linking to care in the community. We've heard this from patients trying to get care through Alameda Alliance, through patients who have Blue Cross, through patients uh, who have Medicare. There's just not enough providers out there. Um, so the patients come back and tell us this. They'll say, I got a list of 20 psychiatrists or I got a list of 20 uh, therapists and I called them all and no one's taking new patients. So we hear that from the patients themselves. And we also hear that from the plans. You know, we hear from the manager of access at the county tell us, no, you're right, we don't have enough providers. We might not be able to link that person to somebody to provide them care. Um, so this is a huge problem um, uh, throughout our community. So what is the best way to deliver care? Well, lots and lots of studies say that collaborative care has the most um, positive outcomes. So this is when people get their mental health treatment in the same place that they go to get their primary care. So they don't have to then follow that tree to a different provider at a different clinic. When they can get that all in the same place, their outcomes are really much better, not just for their mental health, but also for other disorders like diabetes and hypertension. So we would like to do this. We would like to do the best practice what's best for our patients. Uh, but we do not have enough behavioral health providers at AHS right now to do that. Um, so what we're really doing, um, and we also don't have enough behavioral health community health workers to follow the patients and make sure they get linked to outside care in the community. So we have some pretty serious gaps here. Next slide. 
Uh, and then the other group, um, those who are experiencing moderate to severe or serious mental illness. Um, this is about 5% of the total population. Um, so uh, if you look at it, that 20%, about three-fourths of that group is mild to moderate, about one-fourth is uh, a severe mental illness. So we do have services for this now. Um, we have uh, programs called, um, uh, there can be called IOP, intensive outpatient. They can also be called day treatment. Um, but they are only programs that are accessible for people that have both Medicare and Medi-Cal. Um, there were some other issues that we um, uh, discovered in our assessment. Um, patients stay at that level of care for a very long time, um, multiple years. Um, so there's not enough um, new patients kind of coming into that system. Um, we did also find that patients who are receiving that level of care were benefiting from the treatment. Um, they felt very positively about um, the services that they were getting, and we had very passionate staff who really advocated to continue um, those services. Um, but um, we have a huge um, group of patients here with serious mental illness that we're not serving, and that is our Medi-Cal population. IOP is only available and only paid for by Medicare. So all of our serious mental illness patients who have Medi-Cal um, or are uninsured, none of those patients could access our current services, the IOP model. Next slide. So all of this analysis started two years ago, but what's happened in two years is unfortunately the picture's not better for mental health. It's actually gotten much worse during COVID. Um, we see this in studies that um, ask um, folks about their um, symptoms of depression, anxiety. Um, we also see this when we ask about substance use um, and when we ask about suicidality. All of those things have increased during COVID. Um, and where we were seeing before 20 or 30% of people uh, screening positive for these disorders, this more recent study showed 40% of adults were reporting symptoms of depression or anxiety at some point during the year. Um, so we know all of the stress from COVID has made uh, people's mental health worse. Um, so they need us more than ever. Next slide. Uh, and then how does this more directly affect people experiencing homelessness? Um, so behavioral health conditions are more prevalent in the homeless population compared to the general population. Um, so general population 20% um, and the, the people who experience homelessness can be higher. Um, it's important to address behavioral health symptoms. We can't just ignore those while we treat other health conditions or their social needs because we know all of these things are interrelated. And we looked at the data to see all of the patients that were seen by our primary care behavioral health team um, in the past year, and 21% of those patients were on the homeless registry. Um, so about 20% of the patients we're currently seeing um, are experiencing homelessness. Next slide. So we had a couple different options. How are we going to meet this great need for our population um, with resources we have now or resources that could be allocated to these services? So we knew whatever we did, it had to improve the access for all of our patients, not just for people who had Medicare. It had to affect um, uh, better access for all of our patients with Medi-Cal and were uninsured. 
Um, we also had to work um, on something that was going to be um, uh, uh, affordable so that we could offer it to more patients. And so we had a couple of different options. Um, we could, one, keep IOP, the same service that was offered right now for the SMI population, and change it and do nothing else. That wasn't a popular option because, again, it's not addressing our, our Medi-Cal patients. It's not addressing a mild to moderate population. Uh, number two option was to get rid of IOP and switch everything to a wellness center model. That option was also not popular with um, current IOP patients and staff um, and other advocates in the community who really advocated to keep IOP services. Option three was to combine the two with exactly the same resources we had now. We would have to shift around and do a little bit less IOP and a little bit more um, outpatient therapy. Um, and uh, our executive team actually chose a fourth option, um, which um, I think meets a lot of the needs that we had identified. Um, they decided they're going to keep IOP. Um, they're going to keep IOP at both Fairmont and Highland campuses. And they're going to really work on improving it, having better throughput, having more patients enter the program for shorter periods of time. They decided that they also wanted to do a wellness center, um, which would be looking at the people with Medi-Cal and who are SMI. Um, and so they want to develop that at Fairmont. And both of those options are great, but they did not meet our needs for our patients with mild to moderate disorders that we're seeing and we're not able to see for therapy. So they also um, agreed that they would provide more resources, new staffing, so that we could grow our primary care or integrated behavioral health program and offer therapy for all these patients that were screening positive. We won't have to send them all out to the community. We'll actually just be able to provide them therapy here in their medical home. Next slide. A couple of changes that are also going to happen at the time that we are moving forward on our service um, redesign um, is um, the services that are really um, focused on the SMI population are going to come out of ambulatory care services division and move over to the CAO for John George. So that's the IOP PHP day treatment programs are moving over to John George leadership as well as this new specialty mental health wellness center that they're going to develop with the county that will allow us to see those SMI patients with Medi-Cal. So those are shifting over, um, and I'm working on a handoff for that. And then here in ambulatory, what we are retaining and focusing on growth for is our primary care behavioral health program, um, where we do services right there in the wellness centers. Our substance use disorder services, which I know you guys had an, uh, a separate presentation about, so those are staying in ambulatory. Um, and um, we have a small um, psychology training clinic at Highland um, that um, uh, where we have a graduate psychology students and they um, see our patients, um, and we're going to continue to have that service as well. And the one thing I wanted to add here is just that those top two we're not in the homeless health center scope. So um, 
we don't have to establish any new sort of management relationships as the homeless health center with anyone at John George because those were always out of scope for us in the health center, even though they were in the scope of ambulatory. Um, just to be really clear for that, anyone who's really paying close attention. Next slide. Okay, so what happens next? Um, so I'm working to transfer the oversight of those SMI programs over to the new CAO, um, uh, and th that's going well. Um, they are going to implement those new IOP recommendations, reducing the length of stay, tracking progress with validated tools, and decreasing time for admission. So that's big projects that they're working on that are really going to improve services there. Um, they're going to continue working also on that specialty mental health um, uh, site um, that we hope to contract with the county. Um, and what we're focusing on in ambulatory now is um, to build up our primary care behavioral health team with additional staffing so we can meet patient needs. Um, so next slide, I'll discuss more. So when we look at our behavioral health staff in our, our wellness centers, in our primary care clinics, um, we are really understaffed when we compare it to um, all these studies that have been done on best practices, um, when we compare it even just to the other um, uh, CHCN clinics in the county, we've been in contact with them asking about their staffing, and AHS is below their staffing levels as well as below the recommended um, uh, SAMHSA staffing levels. Um, and so what um, uh, we were thinking to propose to our FTE committee is to uh, bring up um, our level of staffing to meet those benchmarks. Um, and so, um, it, for example, here, if you just look at the first line, a LCSW or a psychologist, um, someone who's actually going to be meeting with patients to do therapy services, um, for the number of patients that we see, it recommends that we have 12.6. We currently have 6.8. So we only have half oh, wow. the recommended level. And that is the recommended level if you had 20% of patients testing or uh, screening positive. And as we said, ours are 30%. So I think that we actually need more than that. I think we need uh, a new total of 13.8 FTE. So that's the recommended staffing levels and another 10% for that 10% um, increase in our screening. Um, and so you can see on, on uh, LCSWs, on psychiatrists, and on um, uh, community health workers, we are all under benchmarks. And this would be what we would need to bring us up to that. Um, this is going to dramatically, if we're able to get this level of staffing, um, it's going to change a lot. Um, so when we screen some, uh, somebody and they report positive that they're having symptoms of depression or anxiety, right now we meet with them maybe once or twice and then try to uh, get them to a therapist in the community. Sometimes they have to come back multiple times because we can't find someone. Now what we will do is we will screen and we will start treatment. And it'll be a lot better for our patients, and it will, um, we believe, lead to better outcomes, um, like it's been demonstrated in the other literature. Next slide. You want me to take this, Karen? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, I think this is just a translation of, you know, the ambulatory picture that Karen presented you to 
the homeless health center budget that um, that this board approved uh, last month. Um, so this, I just pulled out this element of our budget, um, which shows the behavioral health staffing that's dedicated to people experiencing homelessness. And you'll see it's somewhere around like 1.3 FTE. Um, so given that the overall FTE across ambulatory would expand, um, you know, it would expand the homeless health center budget as well. And, and given whatever happens with the Alameda Health System executive team, you know, and their decisions around the approval of this, it may require us to amend our budget to actually approve, you know, receiving more dollars from the rest of the system um, for this portion of the homeless health center budget. Um, essentially, you know, a doubling of the staff in ambulatory for behavioral health is something like a doubling of the staff for the homeless health center for behavioral health. I think what I would point out here is that our current budget is at, you know, less than 1.5 FTE behavioral health staffing for a 2000 something person homeless clinic. Um, and, you know, even um, three FTE of behavioral health staff for such a clinic would be kind of laughably small if we were a standalone um, clinic for people experiencing homelessness or at, we're really a standalone clinic in some ways or an integrated clinic for people experiencing housing insecurity more than um, more than literal homelessness. But I think, you know, the disproportionality that Karen shared, Alameda Health System patients are 30% prevalence versus 20% in the general population. Homeless health center patients, the prevalence is going to be even higher than that of mental illness, it's also going to be even higher for, um, you know, complex trauma and things that aren't really tracked in some of these general population studies, you know, which tend to really focus on depression. So, you know, I think the, the, the main point I'd like to make here is even if we double this, we'll still be way under what we really need for this population. Um, I think we shouldn't be at all embarrassed about advocating for this level of change and, and then quickly getting beyond it um, and, and, you know, building out the services that are really required across the health center. I have a quick question about um, the where, you know, if, if we were to allocate, uh, you know, this new staffing, um, how has it been, is it being proposed also, like, where, like, the locations where these folks would be working out of? Yeah, so um, we, we have, like, a kind of a minimum level of staffing at each clinic, um, okay. and then... Um, Space is always an issue, so we were thinking that a number of these new staff um, might actually be centrally located in a space like Eastmont or Fairmont, where they would be doing a lot of telehealth to the other clinics, but they would actually be sitting in, in one of those spaces. Um, we are currently offering um, patient choice on either in-person or telehealth visits, and the majority of patients are choosing telehealth. Um, so um, as long as we're able to do that, we want to kind of build on that model. It also works well for patients if they're doing weekly therapy, um, and that can be quite a commitment to have to come in person every week for a therapy appointment. So telehealth also is a, is a good option for them. Um, so as much as we can, we want them physically co-located in the Newark, Hayward, Eastmont, and Highland Wellness Centers. Um, but some of them also might be uh, co-located in the location and doing telehealth to patients at all of those sites. I think my just smelly feedback kind of moving forward is if we are 
keeping the homeless health centers and like homeless population in mind as we do this, thinking about, you know, the specific needs for those patients. Um, you know, we heard from previous presentations that it, it is pretty, like transportation to these locations can be pretty challenging. Um, and I'm not sure, um, just from my experience from, you know, my work that I've done, um, I, I don't know how hard it is to reach patients on the phone. Uh, when they have, you know, housing security, the cell phone changes constantly, things like that. So just kept me like keeping that, maybe a, that specific need uh, for patients experiencing homelessness kind of in mind kind of moving forward. Thank you. Did you actually find that the majority of the... Um, the homeless people that do have mental health issues, it's usually dual diagnosis, isn't it? Isn't there a lot of um, substance abuse along with maybe PTSD or, or depression or whatever combined where they would need two different types of therapy or a special type of therapy that would address both uh, areas? Do we have that? Yes, we do. Um, so our, our substance use disorder program at Highland is um, totally um, uh, concurrent capable. Um, so they have um, a psychologist, licensed clinical social workers and psychology students to do therapy um, and substance use counselors to do the substance abuse piece. Um, and um, we also do that in, in, our, in our individual therapy services also. Um, so the, the the LPFWs at the wellness centers or somebody at our, our Highland psychology clinic um, uh, will see a patient and we'll, we'll address both or whichever one the patient is um, uh, wanting to begin with um, because, yeah, those things often go hand in hand. Um, okay. We see um, a lot of, um, of trauma in the population as well. Um, which, you know, if we go back also to that mild to moderate and moderate to severe category, mm -hmm. those don't really correspond, those correspond to like how much resources you use. They don't correspond to like your amount of suffering, really, because you can have somebody who's had <laughs> multiple traumas, experiencing yeah. um, housing insecurity, um, financial insecurity, and because they haven't been hospitalized, they're still considered mild to moderate, um, but they have, you know, really, you know, severe needs that, that need to be addressed. Right. Okay. Thank you. Any other comments or questions? And you had a couple more slides, yeah? I, I don't know. Did I? Yep. Oh, there we go. Um, the last slide I put at the end was just um, more math to look at if you were interested. There was a, an appendix in there about another way of trying to calculate how many um, staff we need. This actually leads us to a higher number. Um, so to Dr. Francis's point, I think um, comparing ourselves to benchmarks is a good way to start. Um, and But then, you know, we have unique needs for our patients and our population. So, I mean, I think that we will see once we start offering more of these services, the true demand. Um, when, you, when you're not offering it, you don't really sometimes know um, how many patients are going to actually um, uh, choose and benefit from these services. Absolutely. Yeah, I think to, to Lucia and Loretta's point, I think around also the, the homeless health center population, I think, 
it will be helpful to think through for some of this FTE, how do we want okay. to really, you know, ensure co-occurring disorder with housing insecurity, you know, is, is something we're able to address inside of, you know, a drop-in model or groups or sort of, you know, elements of mm -hmm. programmatic designs in addition to additional FD, FTE, which I know, Karen, you're excited about thinking about too. Um, Dr. Wise, you're calling me Dr. Francis, so I have to call know, you Dr. Wise. Um, so yeah, I know. I mean, I know. I know you're excited thinking about. It. it seems like job one for us is get the resources we need, and then there's an additional there's additional work that I think Lucia and Loretta are talking about uh, to to be presented at least, which is like how do we make sure that that those resources are designed appropriately for the needs of people experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if I have. This is Mark. I don't know if I have really a question as more of a comment. I'm just thinking um, it, it might help um, under certain circumstances to let patients know um, as you're as you're treating them over time to let them know uh, what the progress is and where they stand. Um, and I'm not saying you're not doing that. I'm just saying uh, that I think that would be good to do because then. Um, uh, then they can gauge for themselves whether or not they want to continue <clears throat> treatment. And I think, uh, and, and the reason why I think that's important is because I think if they're, if they're kind of informed kind of as steps go, um, eventually some of them will go, well, you know what, I need to continue treatment um, <clears throat> because it's not, it's not good for me to stop. I need to keep going. And I, th I think uh, part of that, might, what might help is to let them know where you think they are uh, at, at each leg of whatever treatment you might recommend. Uh, um, I, I'm just curious of what you think about that. Yeah, I think that, that that's a really great point. Um, and um, I'm thinking one of the ways we kind of do that now is by re repeating some of these um, measures over time. So. You know, something I do with my patients, I see patients for therapy at Highland and, you know, so I'll um, every month or so, you know, re do the same depression screening, talk about what do you think is getting better, what don't you think is is moving as fast as it could. Um, and, yeah, we, we, we like to really collaborate and be partners with patients in their care um, in many of the ways that you're describing. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, I think, that, I think that's important. I agree. Um, are any of these, do we take court-mandated um, patients, you know, like they, they have to go to a substance abuse program, to be services patients as well? Or? We, if we do, it, it, we do, ahead. and it's um, a very, we, we have to make that distinction that we are here to provide health care, um, mm -hmm. and um they're, they're have, might have an order from the court, and we're here to, to help them in their health care. And if that also, you know, suffices for the mm -hmm. order, um, then, then we want to help them in whatever way we can. But we make it very clear to the game that we are there for the patient, and we don't work for the court. But, yes, patients are in that okay. situation sometimes. Yeah, because I, I was thinking that it would take away uh, something from the homeless needs if we were just servicing court-mandated people. You know what I mean? I, I don't know that there's enough people to service both at the level that you're saying we need. Yeah, it's one of our um, target populations, especially for SUD services. Um, and so we have 
we have uh, relationships with um, with the jail, um, and uh, and through our substance use program, we do get a lot of patients who are are court ordered. So um, uh, that is a population that we work with. Um, and I hadn't thought about it for a more general wellness center population, um, but that's 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 a good thing to consider moving forward. Yeah. Okay, any other? Remarks or questions, Dr. Weiss? Okay, can we move forward, Linda, please? I just wanted to maybe, before we move, just punctuate, first of all, thanking Dr. Weiss for this really great work. I think um, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that's uh, gone into the um, ambulatory programs that are moving to John George, and I think, you know, moving with a really solid foundation for those to also better serve people experiencing homelessness, even though they're outside of, you know, the scope of of what we're doing here within the Homeless Health Center. So I wanted to be formal about really thanking Dr. Wise for that work. And then um, and then wanted to just point out that, you know, this is what we're talking about is, you know, something that potentially comes back to us as a co-applicant board for an amendment mm -hmm. to our budget. And so those questions that you had and, you know, and, and the, the elements of this that interest you, um, you know, be thinking about those and, and um, potentially they'll, they will come back in front of you as an amendment to our, our budget. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, this is this is Mark. I just want to say uh, I'm very thankful uh, for the people who um, who are our guests tonight who um, uh, decided uh, to take a lot of time out of their personal time uh, to attend this meeting. And um, I want you to know I really appreciate uh, each and every one of your presentations um, and um, also our ability to be able to ask questions and and talk to you about um, all the great work and uh, blood, sweat, and tears you guys put into this program. And, and you should be applauded. Absolutely, I agree. I agree. Thank you, yeah. I'm I'm very proud of the work we do, and I would happily come back and talk to you guys about it anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Dr. Francis, is there anything else that you need to comment on? No, that was it. Okay. Okay, so our next um, item three is the strategic planning preparation. And Dr. Francis, you're going to take that in. Yes. Um, so uh -huh. I think the, the first slide uh, shows us where we are, which is marching marching along. Um, unfortunately, uh -huh. Dr. Gupta couldn't join us today, so it is just going to oh. be me, even though her name's on the presentation as well. Um, so you can go to the, the second slide, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so we're here in September. We, we had hoped to do this quality um, presentation a couple months ago and include access and experience data. I think you've seen a bunch of the access and experience data, and there's a lot of new data in the area of quality. So I really wanted to focus on quality um, in this conversation uh, today. Um, and then, of course, next week we'll have our board retreat. Um, Mark, that is going to be uh, Monday, September 20th. 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. on Zoom, um, and we'll be sending out materials for that this week. So that's what's coming up. And then we're on we're on schedule to have a draft strategic plan um, for you all to review and, you know, for us to have some robust comment on in October. And then, um, you know, depending upon, you know, what comes out of the retreat and out of that conversation, um, you know, we could bring this back in, in November and actually finish on schedule with the final approval of our strategic plan or, you know, if there's a lot of complexity or interesting things for us to review, 
Um, I think we have time to delay the strategic plan, as we as we said at the beginning of this, and um, and finalize it, you know, in December or January, and still um, and still be ahead of the strategic planning process for Alameda Health System, where you know this product um, will have some importance in, inside of that process. So that's where where we are in the overall um, plan. And maybe I'll just pause there before jumping into the the talking about quality a little bit. Um, to see if anyone has any questions. I know Mark wanted us to make sure we reviewed the retreat timeline, so um, I added that in there. But anything else anyone wants to ask? Okay, great. Let's just go ahead and uh, go to the next slide then. So we're going to focus on quality data today and um, Something I need to say is this is, you know, for me, I've been I've been looking at these data on people experiencing homelessness and the quality of care they receive for 10 years, since 2011. I think Heather's been doing it for even longer than I have. Um, and we've really had some work done in the last year that's um, completely transformed our ability to both see this data and believe it. Um, so, you know, I think you all have heard a lot from us about the homeless population registry, which we completed um, at the end of 2020 and are continuing to improve. That's really helped us identify, you know, who's experiencing homelessness and housing insecurity in our system in a way that we really couldn't do before. Um, we've had similar, you know, amazing heavy lift done by our quality team led by Dr. Gupta, who unfortunately couldn't join us, um, to stratify the data that we do have about quality across some pretty big ambulatory initiatives and show us that data um, for the general population, you know, within the Alameda Health System and then for people experiencing homelessness. And so, you know, this presentation is, you know, for me, an enormous milestone. Um, and it's really on the backs of, you know, fantastic work done by our business intelligence unit and done by our quality unit here at, at Ambulatory. And, and I hope in the future that um, you can meet some of those folks and, and ask questions um, of them like you have tonight with the, with the dental staff and, and, you know, with Dr. Wise. Um, so that said, our objectives um, here, I just want to review the demographics and housing status and utilization trends because they, they're, they're really important frames for how you understand the quality data. Then I want to um, review some of the trends in quality for ambulatory services overall. So kind of similar to Dr. Wise's presentation, here's what's going on in ambulatory overall, which really frames what the homeless health center is, right? We're a virtual health center for that population of people experiencing housing insecurity and homelessness within ambulatory services. Um, so we can talk about ambulatory services and then kind of frame what it looks like for people experiencing homelessness within that. And then just a brief um, you know, section at the end to look at what the structure is of quality oversight and to look at our biggest quality initiative, which is the quality incentive program um, from uh, through through the Department of Healthcare Services. Um, so you can go to the next slide. And next slide. So um, I think all of you remember this, but I think it, it just bears repeating. Homeless health center patients are older than the general population of ambulatory services more male than the general population, so um, mm -hmm. something like, you know, 60-40 gender identity um, and more African-American, um, so 44% African-American, which is, which is more than the general population in Alameda Health System. Um, so this is, the, this is the group of people we're talking about when we, when we stratify out the, the data. Next slide. Um, the majority of homeless health center patients are doubled up. They're not in homeless shelters or on the streets. So they would not meet the literal 
housing and urban development HUD definition of homelessness. You can see we have 1,271 of our patients in, um, in 2020 who were living with friends or relatives. And we only have about 300 total um, living on the streets, 158 on the streets, 155 in shelter. Um, you know, so we're really talking about what I think, you know, if you weren't living in HRSA land, you would say is a housing insecure population rather than a homeless population, you know, from I think the layperson's perspective. Many of these patients are, um, you know, in a transitional insecure housing state for somewhere around one to six months and then return to something of more of a stable housing situation. It's more of a marker of longer term insecurity. It's not a stable population of people. It's not, it's nothing like quote unquote, the homeless. Um, so this is a year to year, high turnover, month to month, high turnover, who's in this population and who's not in this population. It's really a way of saying, you know, more, how does housing insecurity affect ambulatory patients rather than, um, for example, what the quality data look like for people who are chronically homeless, which is a more stable population of people. That's not what we're looking at. We're not looking at quality data for chronically homeless people, for example, right, who are living on the streets or in shelters more. So I think that's a really important um, caveat for, for this presentation. Sorry, just trying to manage my background noise a little. Um, all right. So... Um, so uh, this is this is just a reminder of where people experiencing homelessness and housing insecurity utilize within our system. So um, this is based on the you know uh, the data that we had before we got down to the 2000 number. So um, before we really were you know using the latest version of the registry data. So you'll see 3,207 homeless health center patients. There's about, you know, 5% of the, of the 64,000 patients who receive care in ambulatory. Um, and you'll see that homeless health center patients use more visits per patient, um, both in primary care and in, um, and in uh, urgent care. But they actually disproportionately use urgent care, really. So it's 8.8 .8 visits per patient for homeless health center patients in overall, overall um, versus 6.2. And then for urgent care, for every 100 patients, we have 62 urgent care visits among people experiencing homelessness, including at the mobile van, which is an, really an urgent care, not a, not a primary care clinic, um, versus 26, you know, for 26 per 100 ambulatory patients. Um, and then I think the other reminder here is that there are over 3,500 homeless patients seen. Hold on one second. Yeah. What? Sorry, just letting my son run by there. Um, over 3,500 homeless patients seen in the emergency department and hospital right. that didn't receive any care in ambulatory settings. And although mm -hmm. we haven't you know, been able to analyze this data by housing status, I suspect this population includes many more folks who are chronically homeless and many more folks who are um, you know, living, in street, living in shelters or on the streets. And we don't really know much about whether they're receiving care outside of Alameda Health System, you know, at Lifelong or at Tiburcio Vasquez or at another health center in the area or at a private, you know, um, uh, uh, clinician's office. So, um, you know, when we look at this quality data, we're looking at a data, a data on a slice of the population 
that Alameda Health System sees that's homeless, that's really able to navigate and make an appointment and come in for care primarily, right? Even in our urgent care settings, except for mobile health, you still have to make a, an appointment the day before often. Um, and it's not, it's not fully walk-in, you know, full-time for everybody. So that's, that's a really huge caveat. Like, this is not doors wide open, um, primary care for everyone, to, to Lucia's point, kind of in the last presentation. And so the quality data we're looking at is for a subset of the HRSA homeless population. Um, so you can go to the next slide. So I'll just pause there. Are there any questions about kind of the universe of, of data or the population that we're talking about here before we, we look at some of the trends? Where do the homeless um, emergency care visits fit in on, on what sector there? Because I know we have a lot of hom homeless that would utilize the emergency department too, right? Right. They're not, that's out of scope of the homeless health center. Um, so okay. it's not something that we're regularly reporting to you all. With the okay. registry data, I think we're capable of reporting it to you all. We, um, we, um, we're not, you know, it's not part of our responsibility to oversee that, right? right? It's not part of our authority. Right. Um, but I think, I think it's something that, that we can think about more, right? We've had partners, comp the complex care management team, for example, come mm -hmm. who are not within our scope, but who, are, who we work together, you know, we work with together pretty closely and um, it may be worth figuring out a way for us to think about that population and analyze that population and the work that we do. Yeah. So that's a great, yeah. great question, Loretta. Thank you. Okay, great. Let's look at some of the overall trends now. Um, and again, this, this is like, and it's just all words on a page, but it's super exciting to me because it's 10 years in the making. Mm -hmm. um, next, next slide, Brenda. So this shows us um, several different quality measures over the last five years and what the trends look like over time. And what you can see is those dotted lines across each of these graphs are the benchmark that we're shooting for. The blue line is ambulatory services overall. The, um, the darker um, up and down sort of pinkish band is when we moved from our last, EH, our last sort of mishmash of EHRs to EPIC. Um, and then the, um, the peach band is uh, um, when the shelter-in-place order hit. Um, and so what you can see really as a common trend across all of these areas, colon cancer screening, blood pressure control, screening for depression, is really pretty dramatic improvements in, in most of those cases from June 2016 through June 2019, and then really dramatic fall-off, um, you know, related either to or that occurred at the same time, either as, as EHR migration or as um, the shelter-in-place order took hold. The data not shown is some of these are starting to go up as we're seeing people in person more again. Um, but um, this has been the general trend of quality measures across all of the ambulatory clinics over the last five years. Why is the blood pressure control so? Um, what's the problem there? <laughs> Um, I, I don't think it's a special problem relative to any of the other ones. You know, I think you see the same kinds of declines in colon cancer screening, screening for depression. You see maybe slightly less of a decline. Timely prenatal care, you see a 20% decline. Yeah, so I, guess, I, I guess. I think so, the, yeah. the problem in many of these cases is not seeing patients in person um, and, you know, and really the barriers to care that, that COVID added um, to, to the care that we were providing. Mm -hmm. 
So um, this slide shows the trends for um, quality measures and ambulatory services. And what I've done here is categorize the trends over time for the last 12 months or so as actually homeless patients perform or our, our services for homeless patients perform consistently better. They're about the same as ambulatory in the middle column or on the right column, um, the non-homeless patients actually do consistently better than people experiencing homelessness. And what you can see, I think the most striking thing here is that for most of the measures, it's really about the same. Um, you know, as you march through these different categories, diabetes care, heart failure, HIV viral load, kidney health, statin therapy, tobacco use, we do very similarly for people experiencing homelessness as we do for, for the general population of Alameda Health System patients. Now that said, the general population of people experiencing homelessness, again, is like the least affected among people experiencing homelessness. It's not chronically homeless folks. It's not folks primarily living in shelters and streets. It's folks primarily who are short-term housing insecure. And so I think, you know, I, I think that's possibly one of the reasons why it looks so similar across. The one place where there is kind of a consistent area where we do worse among people experiencing homelessness is uh, in depression. So um, really, you know, are we able to follow up at all in six months with folks? Um, have they achieved full remission of their depression or at least have they gotten better a little bit? In all of those areas for people experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity, our quality measures are substantially lower than they are for people who are not um, homeless. And I haven't been able to dig in the data, um, you know, more deeply than that to sort of understand any of the, you know, potential associations or root causes there. Um, but it is an interesting pattern that's popped out of this. So I'll just pause there and see if anyone has any questions kind of on the big picture storyline for, for ambulatory and then the comparison with people experiencing homelessness. All right, great. So then quickly, we'll just do this last section quickly. Um, the next slide shows us, I think the, um, yeah, this is, this is the, I, the, the words are probably too small to read. I think the main thing I wanted to show you is there's, there's quite a complicated structure for overseeing quality and there, believe it or not, there's committees that operate that are missing from this um, diagram. So for example, we have a, a health outcome steering committee within ambulatory that has uh, some important responsibilities for quality oversight. The, some of the initiatives are actually not listed. Um, some of the quality improvement initiatives are not listed um, the, the larger ones um, are not listed on this. This is just the standing structure for quality oversight, which reports up to the board of trustees and in some ways parallels this, um, you know, departmental structure among the medical executive um, committees and medical staffs from, from the different hospitals. So it's, it, it's, it's a hospital-oriented structure um, for oversight, um, and it, it reports up to the board of trustees. Um, I think... Um, it's not clear exactly to me how we would map on, you know, for example, our role as a co-applicant board um, onto this, this currently. Um, although, you know, we do have robust quality work that's ha happening within ambulatory, I think the, the places to tie it into this structure are, are not really clear to me still. Um, we can go to the next slide. Um, so, um, this is a slide that uh, was produced by Dr. Gupta, just 
trying to show kind of what's happened over the last few years in terms of the paradigm for quality management in the state of California. And, you know, those of you who, who work in other areas like the CIB, I'd be interested in your perspective on this. Um, you know, really the state, the state programs over the last 10 years or so have moved from this focus on the patient in the room um, and thinking about, you know, are we doing a good service for the patients who are arriving in clinic to see us? and started to try to move toward this um, idea of um, managed care Medi-Cal programs locally. For, for us, it would be Alameda Alliance or Anthem Blue Cross, um, really driving the entire safety net and all of the delivery system providers like Alameda Health System or community clinics in the area, like Clinica or Lifelong, to start thinking about and managing populations of patients who are assigned to us. Whether they're in the exam room today or not, thinking about their quality measures. and so. There's been a deliberate structure of each of these initiatives, you know, disproportionate share funding, um, the DISRIP program, the PRIME program that was in an earlier waiver, and now the quality incentive program to kind of move from this individual patient focus to this population level focus. Of course, we in the community health center world, you know, we've always been required to think about and plan our services on the basis of a population in a, in a certain geography. Um, so in some ways, this is the state Medi-Cal system kind of catching up to what's been done in community health centers for a long time. And I think it, it, it represents in some ways some wind in our sails for the idea of trying to think about managing populations and having the payers want to pay us for that. Um, Lucia, would you add anything You know, here? I think you, you obviously know a lot about this, too. Um, not really. I think that my only, I think my questions around, um, like, performance-based payments um, in general is, you know, I, I always question our ability to provide input into, you know, what gets, what the areas of focus are. Um, so I feel like, you know, in recent years, they tended to align uh, pretty well with the areas of high need. Um, it, but I think in general, um, I feel like some of the disconnect with, um, you know, some of the funding uh, and then like the frontline asks can be a little bit disconnected. So I think I really appreciate um, your question before about, you know, how do we connect, uh, have a, a stronger connection between our quality improvement folks um, and whatever asks are coming out from those groups mm -hmm. um, in the ambulatory care settings and then maybe specifically with our whole health care still homeless, like, are we making connections to how they're, um, um, these metrics are, you know, supporting the care of people um, that we're serving and not just, you know, meeting specific goals or, you know, high-level metrics. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's closely tied with, you know, these ideals around health equity that we're sort of hearing across the health system. Mm -hmm. The real structures to forward, like, frontline priorities and frontline expertise and perspectives to become, like, set in policy, I think, I think you're right. That's a, big, that's a big hill to climb still in front of us. And I think part, part of the work of, you know, this board and, and us is to, is to figure out how to make that real. Mm -hmm. That's a great, great comment. Um, okay, next next slide. 
Um, so the quality incentive program is is the biggest initiative um, in ambulatory that's that's driving um, a lot of our quality improvement work. And so I wanted to make sure that we just kind of double clicked on this and talked a little bit uh, more about it. It was implemented in July 2017. It's a multi-year managed care designated public hospital pay for performance program. So it's you know for patients who are managed Medi-Cal patients, which is not all of our patients, right? You just heard from Karen. We see people on Medicare. We obviously see health pack patients. We see self-pay patients. We see some folks who are insured. But I think it's such a substantial portion of our patients, and it's allowed to pay for infrastructure that we've really leveraged it to drive, you know, what we do for everyone in, in the ambulatory care um, setting. And so to, to receive quality incentive payments, um, Alameda Health System has to achieve, just like everyone else, you know, across the state, specified improvement targets, which grow more difficult year over year. And I think the ways in which they grow more difficult, you know, I think, you know, to Lucia's point, they may not be the ways we want them to grow more difficult. We may want them to say like, hey, let's set higher equity standards. Um, they, they really are more growing, growing more stringent with regard to just, you know, aggregate performance um, on certain targets. Mm -hmm. um, so next slide. Um, so this is just a slide to show you, you know, how much funding this represents for us. So um, these these programs, this is very close to um, the, the quality incentive program is very close to what the prime program was. And they now comprise about 50 to 60 million dollars of supplemental funding per year at Alameda Health System. Um, I can't actually, based on the ways that our budget was constructed this year, tell you how much of that flows to the homeless health center budget. but. It's certainly a substantial portion of, you know, support for the type of work that I'm presenting to you today on quality improvement in, you know, across the homeless health center population. And you can see that that top line, you know, of that's in white of eligible dollars. That's money that we're eligible for but did not receive um, from these incentive programs is, is pretty small. So I think the big picture mm -hmm. is we're doing a pretty good job at Alameda Health System of of being able to bring in um, the dollars in these incentive programs that, that we're eligible for. And we're, and we're not, you know, we haven't been missing a ton of, a ton of the funding. Next slide. So this was a question uh, I think that was, uh, Lucy was interested in talking about a little bit more, and I think others of you will be interested in. So this is, this is our overall dashboard. And again, um, you know, I think in the handouts you can see these, you can actually see the words on this. I think the main thing I want to communicate in the presentation is, you know, some of them are red, some of them are green. We're now in the green for about $40 million of the funding, I think, and we're in the red for about $30 million of the funding that we're eligible for. So we have some work to do to push back up to the levels where, you know, where we're able to get all the money we're eligible for. The reality is the benchmarks are still being negotiated sort of after the fact. The timing of a lot of these things is really weird with the state so we'll end up knowing kind of what benchmarks we were supposed to have hit after we've already done the quality improvement work um, in, in some ways. And so um, I think it's likely we're going to end up, you know, because we're kind of in the meat of most of the other systems in California, we're going to end up collecting most of the funding we're eligible for. I mean, I don't think the big story of the quality incentive program is like this, you know, um, drama of like, are we going to achieve it or are we not going to? I think it's really what, what type of investments have we been able to make um, across across our programs. Um, so the next slide is just the, the completion of that one. <coughs> and then you can go to the next slide, I think. Um, great. So um, 
I just have a couple slides with the, you know, high level bullet points um, for, you know, I think what's, what can be a pretty complex topic. So I think I've already said this a lot, but last year, more patients experiencing homelessness were exclusively seen in the hospital and ED than those seen in all ambulatory settings combined. And I believe it to be true, but don't have the data yet that um, those patients are experiencing more severe forms of homelessness and housing insecurity that are seen in the ED and acute care settings exclusively versus those seen in, in, in the health center. So I think we're just, we're not, you know, as the second bullet says, in ambulatory, being doubled up is five times more common than living in a shelter on the streets. That's not the population that, that we're really talking about with these um, indicators. Um, the third point, you know, quality indicators, as Loretta, you pointed out with blood pressure, it looked like that for a lot of other things too. Mm -hmm. They just suffered really significantly. Um, I didn't present the data today, but, you know, we are starting to see rebounds. Um, so we talked about in our, in our, you know, ambulatory operations council meeting yesterday, how we're seeing these rebounds in blood pressure and other, and other places. So I can bring those back to you at a future um, meeting so you can see how we're starting to come back kind of post COVID. And then next slide. Um, so, I mean, by and large, the quality indicators for people experiencing homelessness in ambulatory settings are very similar to those for non-homeless patients. Um, the one place that that's different is depression-related quality indicators where, mm -hmm. you know, we're doing worse. And I think we heard a really substantive presentation today about how we plan to improve depression care overall in ambulatory. And I think we heard some great questions, you know, from, uh, from Loretta and Lucia around, will that just make this disparity worse? Um, that I think, will, I think, you know, are important questions for us to address in the conversation. Will we end up improving depression outcomes more for non-homeless patients than for people experiencing homelessness? And what do we need to think about our service design? So this is kind of an intersection between this presentation and the, and the one we heard earlier. Um, something I didn't mention earlier, there's too few children identified as, pe as people experiencing homelessness to report on many of the pediatric quality indicators. Um, so I don't, I don't know. This is an area where we have to dig in the data better and understand this. Certainly there are many, many, many housing insecure children in Alameda County. Oh, yeah. The school data, if you look at it, shows mm -hmm. very high numbers, and I'm sure a lot of those receive care in our system. So um, I think, you know, I think it's an open question, you know, whether it is that we're truly not seeing that population or we're not identifying them in our processes right now. Um, to be able to to be able to say much about the quality of care they're receiving in our system, and then the final bullet is just the quality incentive program has allowed Alameda Health System to sorry back to the last bullet on this slide yeah um, to create really important infrastructure to improve quality within ambulatory settings, um, and it's going to continue to be a really important and whatever its successor initiative is at the state level is going to continue to be a really important. Um, thing for us to think about in the homeless health center for improving quality and I think you know, underscoring that, that idea from Lucia of like moving even beyond managing populations to prioritizing the right issues within those populations. Um, so that's, with that, I'll end and take any questions. Damien, can I just make a point that lost the QIP and um, creating infrastructure? So I feel like one of the ways that uh, I also explain we're talking about, um, you know, incentive programs and like the funding that we receive from the state, um, I think it's important to realize that, you know, it, we have, this has been income that has, you know, the health system has been relying on, you know, over the, over years. And so when we talk about supplemental funding, it's not like an extra influx of like sudden cash that we might be getting. Um, if we don't get it, it's possible that, you know, services might need to be cut kind mm -hmm. of thing. 
um, because okay. we're, we're already relying on those funds for, for you know, infrastructure that, you know, we've developed, developed over the years. So um, it's really critical that we are able to meet a lot of these goals and incentives, um, not because, you know, it's like necessarily a ton of new money. It's like money to continue to support their work that we already started. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a really important point. And I think we're seeing some of that same reframing happening with um, the CalAIM program, which we talked a little bit about, um, the Advancing Innovation in Medicaid, which is a complex care kind of oriented initiative for pop people experiencing homelessness and people with, you know, co-occurring disorders, some of the more challenging populations to care for. We've had these programs that are like the Health Homes program that um, that then we build, you know, the, the delivery system to be able to, to provide and then and then we're sort of presented with something that's more of an incentive payment where you have to achieve certain deliverables to get the same amount of to funding get the same. Yeah. right and and um, I think it is really important to understand that you know not getting the incentives is a net loss in in the case mm-hmm. of QIP and in many of these things not not just in QIP but in other things that are labeled quote unquote supplemental um, I think that point that, that Lucia made holds true. So thank you for that. Yeah. Okay, great. You'll see a couple of these slides in the, the slide deck that's going to be part of your homework before the retreat next week. Um, it's going to be, you know, reflect on um, you know, we're going to give you a packet of about 20, 25 slides from the last couple years that we've looked at and, and have you look at those, pick out a couple slides that just, you know, are, are, uh, stand out to you among those and then be able to talk to the rest of the co-applicant board about what about those couple slides um, is important for the future of the Homeless Health Center. And, um, and, and that is going to really help us sort of develop some themes and, 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 and priorities uh, moving forward, you know, um, starting with our retreat next week. So I'm really looking forward to continuing the strategic planning process in that retreat with, uh, with all of you. Thanks so much. Any other questions or comments? Okay, can we go to the next slide, please? Okay, where are we here? We're on H. Okay, we have a program for it. Here's Heather. Take it away, Heather. Hello, and thank you so much. All right, so I'll make our quick program report um, just on health center compliance. I wanted to thank uh, Neha Banger for representing the CAB recently during a monitoring visit with Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program um, that was centered on governance. So she had the opportunity to answer a lot of questions about her experience as a CAB member. And uh, so we will be getting the results of that visit very soon from Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program. They had did a great job representing y'all. You should be very proud of her. And if we had it recorded, I'm sure you would you would agree with our with our sentiments. Um, moving down into mobile health, we heard a lot from our uh, folks uh, at Dental, so that was already provided. I also wanted to provide um, some information on the mobile Eastmont Dental Pilot, which began on July 1st. 
So we have these specific targets for this pilot um, by September 30th, so at the end of this month. And that is to have a 10% increase in the AHS assigned patients seen on mobile who are seen in primary care within month, one month. And again, right now we're at around the 38 to 40, so we're right around 38%. We're hoping to see that go up to 48% and we'll have that data next month. Um, and also to uh, increase utilization, stabilize and increase utilization for WANDA overall from three months prior by also having uh, her working at Eastmont. Let's go ahead and slide down to the, the visual of our visit to really helpful. Um, thank you so much, Brenda. Um, so you can see here um, our mobile health enabling encounters. Um, this is the purple, the purple one that shows our work with our mobile health specialists who work with patients that are both seen and not seen by our clinicians. Um, the teal is our medical visits with Wanda, and then you see the dental visits are, okay, so there's a light blue and then there's a teal. I apologize, colors are complicated. So um, the 52 represents the medical and the 25 represents dental. And the only reason for that dip in dental here is because our dental provider was on vacation for part of this time. And just as a reminder, he is one, he's just the one person. So when he is away yeah. for two or three days, it really makes an impact. You can see that he's averaging um, when he's there full, fully and not having vacation, he's seeing roughly 45 um, patients in a month. And then you'll see we also had a little a little vaccine blip, a little a little return to some vaccinations. We had six folks get their vaccines with us in mobile health again in the month of August. So the, the team does carry vaccine with them and they're able to vaccinate. I think with the return of Delta, this is consistent with what we're seeing at Alameda Health System as well. Some folks are coming in, they feel that it's their mm -hmm. time and they've come in and gotten their vaccines. And we've talked a lot about um, some reports for understanding self-pay, and I'm sorry for the delay in this, but we have made some progress. I don't have a report for you yet, but I can tell you from behind the scenes that I'm seeing some uh, some progress. Um, there's a self-pay work group that we that meets weekly that I um, get to participate in, and so they're really starting to understand these self-pay patients a lot better, and we'll be creating a report for us that represents those patients experiencing homelessness. Um, we were working on our sliding fee policy, which you guys um, approved recently, and the EPIC build was completed to allow for us to use that sliding fee scale within our scope of um, services, and we're finalizing some materials that get distributed to patients um, in relationship to that. Our last little section on leadership and advocacy, if you can scroll just a little bit farther so we can see. Oh, thank you so much, Brenda. Um, this just uh, reinforces our busyness um, and leadership that's happening both across Alameda Health System as well as across the county. And so a couple of new um, updates in regards to that. Uh, Brenda and I have been asked to support the team at Eastmont that is supporting our Afghani refugees through the refugee clinic. And so we are providing some infrastructure support there. Also, um, every year I work on a it's called the NOFO, the Notice of Funding Opportunity Committee, which is the Alameda County package that goes to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. So the money that comes back to the county to, to care for people experiencing homelessness is packaged up by providers in Alameda County and sent to HUD, and then that money comes back. And it's roughly $43 million that comes back to Alameda County through that package. And 
I get to do something called a rating and ranking of, of these applications because I'm non-conflicted. We don't get any of this money ourselves at Alameda Health System. So I get to be just a helpful support by reading their applications and helping with the rating and ranking system. Uh, and Dr. Francis continues to cover the ambulatory physician system lead role until our new chief administrative officer is hired for ambulatory services. So while he's given up on the, I shouldn't say given up, while he's been relieved of duty being a medical director for Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program while they were waiting for their medical director to return, he is fully supporting Alameda Health System in multiple ways. So that is what's happening. Heather, can I ask a question? Absolutely. Um, how are the Afghan refugees um, getting the information about our clinic, about the clinic that we have there at Eastmark? How do they know that they can go there for services? Oh, they're, they're typically, so we're working with the county, um, I want to say they're more or less assigned to us. So they come okay. through a system, they're called, this is a special type of, of refugee, they're called parolees. It's different from some of the other refugee um, programs that we work with that help establish the refugee clinic. And so um, we're, we're asked to do this specifically, and the refugees and parolees are working very closely with other organizations that help link them to us. And so our okay. our job is mostly just to catch them and these other okay. services are the ones who bring them to us and Yeah, we're sure. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. Thank I'm you. still learning a lot about it, so I, I, I may be yeah. better prepared in the future because um, it is all very new to me. Yeah. Okay, is that it? That's it for me. Okay, Brenda, can you see the... Okay, is there any public comment? How about any board member comments? Thank you for getting all these um, wonderful people to speak. Just so much great information, and I, I know everyone feels thankful for that. So thank you, uh, Damon and Heather, for doing that. Okay, I think we're done then for the evening. Correct? Nothing else? Okay, we can adjourn at seven fifty-eight p.m. Great, thank you. Thanks thank so you much. so much. All right, thank you, everybody. See you guys next week. All right.